Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Monica. I'm Monica, compulsive eater and restrictor. Hi. Um, I also am a body obsessor, compulsive exerciser, and an orthorexic. I usually don't identify as those in meetings. It would be a bit much. Um, thank you, Erin, for asking me to lead. I want to start off by sharing the recovery of being um, asked to lead and standing up here. I've been in the rooms for almost seven years. It'll be seven years in September. Um, It took me a month before I raised my hand in a meeting. Um, Early on in my recovery, I was asked to to lead my home meeting, probably about a year into the rooms. My sponsor asked me to lead it. And I threw what was basically the adult version of a temper tantrum in the courtyard of 8,000 Sunset Plaza. so to be asked and to actually feel excited to be able to come here and, like, and, and see everyone and share my story is an enormous amount of recovery. Um, I love this meeting. Congratulations to the trip takers, the, can- uh, the birthday. Um, happy birthday. Welcome to the newcomers, everyone. Um, this meeting was so important to me. I haven't been here in years, but um, in my first few years of recovery, I was here every week. Um, I took every trip I ever took in this meeting um, here. Um, and so I'm just like, I'm happy to be back. It's really nice. Um, I brought pictures. I didn't know if I was going to pass them around or not, but I had them in my big book. Um, And my story is uh, one of restricting and of compulsive eating, and I'll get into it in a moment. But the pictures, there's one from when I was probably around my heaviest um, in college and another one when I was probably about my lowest weight shortly after. Um, And I always thought, you know, before I got into recovery, that, like, that was kind of my story. Like, those are the bookends, and that was my story. And, like, you knew everything you would need to know about me from looking at them. And what I've come to understand after is that, like, my story actually exists in the middle, and, like, that's where I get to live now, and that is where sanity is for me. Um, And I also want to share them because it's – it's embarrassing. It's been embarrassing for me. I don't feel that way right now. Thank God, standing here with people that I know relate, but – it was embarrassing that I looked the way I did at a certain point when I was heavier and that because of the way I felt my body, I didn't take care of myself in other ways. It was embarrassing to me that I didn't look the way that I did in the thinner picture anymore. So it's like too much of me being in my head, and um, my job is to show up and be of service. So if that is helpful to anyone to see, I'm happy to share it. Um, okay, so what it was like. I uh, grew up in... Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> um, I was the oldest of three kids. My dad, I like to say my dad's family is full of addicts of various ilk. My mom's family is full of Italians. Um, it was kind of, it felt like a perfect storm in a lot of ways. Um, there's a little bit of mental illness sprinkled in there. Um, and I don't feel like I was born with this disease necessarily. I feel like I was either born with or very early on came into an inordinate amount of fear and shame and anxiety. And, um, I took, I used what I could to help me with that. And early on, you know, up until about the age of 11, I had a couple of anxious tics that I developed that were pretty, um, relatively minor. Um, and, um, and then at a certain point, probably around 14, 15 years old, I really liked to turn to the food in either direction, controlling the food and or controlling my body. 
Uh, I don't know which came first. I actually feel like this restricting may have, may have come first for me because of the control. Um, but the truth is I grew up in a house that was really loud. There was a lot of yelling. Um, my parents divorced when I was nine. Uh, and my dad moved out of state. So that there was a very um, quick fracture in the way that my life looked like sort of before I was nine and after I was 11, which there was my grandfather died and there was just like a series of events that kind of felt like they all spun my world around. Um, and, and so now I can say with such gratitude that this was the disease that I got. My brother got drug addiction. He was a very hard kid to deal with. He was um, opinionated and militant and controlling, which made for an even more difficult household. Um, and that, you know, spoiler alert in, you know, how it relates to my story, but he ultimately overdosed from heroin. Um, it kills him when he was 27 years old. And so I can sit here with an enormous amount of gratitude that, like, I got a disease that allowed me to live long enough to find my way into a program of recovery. Um, so what it looked like for me is that, you know, I, I have early memories a little bit of um, – Eating more pizza than was probably comfortable, or um, there was a loop in my grandmother's house from sort of like the entry point to the living room to the dining room to the kitchen, and you could kind of like go around in circles, and she would put out at holidays um, salted nuts and jelly beans. And so like I would just do the loop <laughs> um, until I felt ill, um, but not regularly. It kind of was like a thing that would happen. Um, and then when I was about 12 years, 12 years old, I started competitively figure skating. And it was a huge part of my life all through high school. Um, and it's an interesting sport because it really, there's an ideal body type for that sport. And I was an athletic kid. I was not overweight. Um, thankfully, I didn't have that experience sort of like taking up brain space for me when I was young. But um, I, I was conscious of it as an athlete and wanting to be smaller and also knowing that um, if I were to try too hard to control that, it was going to negatively impact my ability to show up and, and perform in the way that I wanted to. And so I actually felt at the time that my um, participation in that sport was saving me from having a full-blown eating disorder because it felt like I found something else that I loved more than I hated myself. Um, and thank God for that. Um, but so once I sort of got into college, the swings really started to get big. I would... I lived very sort of in the black and white, which I think is common for a lot of us, in that I was either eating perfectly and exercising compulsively, or I was eating garbage and never exercising. And so I would <laughs> see a couple of people smiling <laughs> in recognition. Um, that's reassuring. I, um, so I would get down to a, a weight that was ultimately lower than I could maintain for any significant period of time, and my body would give out, and so then I would start the compulsive swing, and then I would gain the way back plus some. And so the pendulum would swing, and every time that it swung, it was bigger, like the, the gap was bigger. And what happened is I moved out to L.A. I was about 24 years old. Um, and I, you know, decided that I was, like, done with it finally. Um, and I was going to do a commercial diet, which I had never done before. I had never used the word diet before. I found it so shameful. Um, I have heard people tell stories of, like, putting a picture of their fat cells on the refrigerator to remind them not to eat. Like, any version of acknowledging that that, is, that I was uncomfortable at that was horrifying to me. It was way too vulnerable. Um, so I very secretly started doing an online version of, like, a weight loss program where you count points. Um, <laughs> and I was really good at it. <laughs> I was really good at it. Um, and I lost about 50 pounds in, like, a year and a half. Like, nothing that would be extreme by the numbers game. Um, but what I couldn't have accounted for was the 
absolute crazy obsession that was going to take over my mind. Um, and I got to the lowest weight I'd ever been at before, and I knew that it was inevitably going to swing back and that it was going to be bigger than it had ever been before and that I couldn't handle that. Um, and I maintained that for about three-plus years, um, and the way that I maintained that was severe restriction and orthorexia. Uh, I don't know if everyone is familiar with that term, but the, way, the easiest way it's been described to me is an unhealthy obsession with being healthy. And so it certainly can take the form of caloric restriction, but for me it was about um, being healthy and be, having energy. So I thought that it, you know, my version of the Holy Grail was superfoods, and it was like anything that was like on a list somewhere. There was a lot of kale. There was a lot of pumpkin. The palms of my hands turned orange. My roommates thought I was using self-tanner all the time. It's very um, invisible to me, but visible to other people. Um, and so at a certain point, I was... Um, 29 years old, I um, I had been working at one job for the entire time that I lived in L.A., which I was very fortunate to have that situation, and it, it ended fairly abruptly, um, and I was feeling like I was starting to see the pounds sort of creep up on the scale, and my solution to that was to start training for a marathon, naturally, um, and so... I was training for the marathon, my job ended, my brother died, and I got injured, kind of like all within succession of each other. Um, and that was the start of what would become my bottom. But my solution to that was going to see a nutritionist because I thought that the food was the problem. Uh, I ran the marathon, injured, I completed it, and I completely drilled my body into the ground. I wasn't able to run for probably 18 months after that. Um, and so I went to this nutritionist who, you know, via email blast sort of like presented herself in my life and um she was so sweet and she took into account all of my extensive restrictions that I placed on my diet and made a meal meal plan for me and she was like this is what your body needs and it'll be enough to get you through and if you find that you're binging or eating outside of this plan it may be a bigger problem you may need more help she meant therapy. Um, I was not ready for that. <laughs> so my solution was to stick to the food plan because that's what I do. Uh, and I, I was working at a new job at the time, and three days into the food plan, I found myself in the kitchen compulsively eating cookies, and I was like, we've got a problem here. Um, and I knew OA existed. I don't know how. I know a lot of people talk about being, um, you know, the light was lit when they, someone told them about the program. I always knew it existed. I had Googled it maybe three or four times online just to, like, find meetings and then never got to them um, over the course of the previous few years. And that night or that afternoon, I went back to my office. I searched the meetings. I went to my first meeting that night before I went home from work uh, on the west side, somewhere on the west side, some park. Um, and I haven't left since. Oh, my God, the right time. Um, <laughs> so my first meeting, I walked into the door and um, – I didn't see anyone that looked like me, and I didn't see anyone within 15 years of my age. Um, I didn't, and I didn't hear anything that really pulled me, like that was like, this is something that I want, but I knew I had no other ideas. Um, so for me, my step one was walking in the door of these rooms. That was me admitting I was powerless. It was the first time that, by the virtue of walking into a room, you guys all knew my secret. That was really freeing. 
Um, but what I did get from that meeting, actually, <laughs> the, um, the newcomer contact from that meeting, who was a lovely woman, after the meeting came up to me to welcome me, and she said, well, you, you look great to me, which is so well-intentioned and so not helpful, and I'm really grateful that I, I was in enough pain that that didn't deter me. The thing that I heard in that meeting was um, uh, go to at least six meetings. So I would offer that to any newcomer that hasn't heard that yet, go to at least six different meetings. Um, and I remember sitting in the meeting the whole time thinking about um, what was the candy bar I was going to buy on the way home from the meeting. Uh, and I didn't. Like, that was the miracle, that I went home and I didn't buy a candy bar on the way home. Uh, and the next morning there was another meeting very close to my um, apartment that was a meditation meeting. It was an old meeting a Thursday morning at 8,000 Sunset. Uh, and it was a really tiny meeting. There was maybe four people in it. Uh, and a lot of them identified as anorexic or bulimic, and I heard my story there. Um, so that was like when I was like, okay, there's a place for me here. Um, I heard very early on someone say 30 meetings in 30 days, so I did that. I heard someone say 90 and 90, so I did that. I did two 90 and 90s in my first year in program because I had the time because my life had gotten so small from the disease that I had time to go to meetings. And I was so eager to have, like, pillars in my week and in my weekends especially that the more meetings I got to, the better for me. I got a sponsor. Um, I was looking for the perfect sponsor. I had a list. Um, basically, she looked like me but skinny. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I didn't find her, but I did find that my higher power has consistently presented to me the next thing that I needed. And I, I got to the point where I was ready to start working the steps. And I went to a meeting I'd never been to before, and I saw a woman speak. And then I went to another meeting the next day, and I saw the same woman speak. And then on Sunday, I went to another meeting, and I saw the same woman speak. And she talked about how much she loved sponsoring. So she became my sponsor um, for my first year. And she was exactly what I needed. I started working the steps. I was very quick about it. I didn't want to waste anyone's time, certainly my own. Um, and I didn't set a formal abstinence with her because I was, at the time, eating perfectly. So I assumed by default I was abstinent, uh, which worked for about 30 days, and then it didn't, and then it worked for about 60 days, and then it didn't. And so I have a lot of chips from this meeting. Um, and... I got about six months of, quote, abstinence, and I worked through my eighth step, and then I relapsed, um, quotation marks, because what I started to realize after I relapsed was that I had never actually been abstinent. I had just been the restricting part of my disease, and that was very important for me to understand. So at that point, I started working with a new sponsor, and because I was in relapse or I wasn't abstinent, she had me starting working the steps over. And I had been reluctant to switch sponsors because I didn't. I just wanted to sort of power through the steps, like keep my head down, get through 12, and then I could move on to the next thing. And then I got to – then actually, so I – I wanted to do that, and then things with my sponsor was, like, not feeling like it was working anymore. And I found someone that, that for me, the thing that the marker of a good sponsor for me has always been, and it was the person from whom which I could hear the message. So this woman, friend of mine in the rooms, for whatever reason, I was hearing God through her. And she had what I wanted, and so I asked her to be my sponsor, and she said she couldn't. Um, and so I was like, great, that's a sign that I'll just stick with my current sponsor. And then two weeks later, my current sponsor said she was moving out of the country. And so God did for me what I couldn't really do for myself. And then this other woman who had already asked was like, all right, let's have a conversation. Um, so I started the steps over with her, and I cannot emphasize enough how starting over at step one was the best thing I've done in my program to date. I did my food history all over again. I went through everything with her. And in 
her hearing that, she reflected be, back to me that it may be helpful to add no restriction to my abstinence. And it was the most frightening thing I had done in the rooms because it was the thing I didn't know how to do. I knew how to put things down. I didn't know how to not put things down. Um, and it's a tricky thing to define. For me, I've defined restricting as choosing to not eat something for any reason other than I don't want it. Um, and it's worked. And by the grace of my higher power and this program, that was lifted for me that day. I had the willingness to eat the thing that I wanted to eat. Um, and I've also had the blessing of both of my sponsors at the time and now my, my current sponsor all told me that within their first year or a couple of years of, of program and abstinence, they gained about 20 pounds. And then as they worked the steps, they've lost that and then some. And that was absolutely my experience. I don't know if that was the exact number, but certainly it was um, in that range. Um, I was actually thinking about as far as numbers are concerned when I was starting. When I, I don't have any memory of being conscious of my weight until I was about 14 years old. So it was like not really on my radar. But there was, um, I was on the school bus with a bunch of girls from my class and they were talking about their weight and I remember that I weighed six pounds more than these other two girls. And that number has stuck with me forever. And the like great irony being that in the picture that you see me in these ones going around, the lowest weight I got to was that exact same number. Um, and then I, at a certain point before I came into the rooms, I stopped liking the number I was seeing on the scale so I stopped weighing myself because it was just, like, too painful. And that's about what I weigh right now. <laughs> so it's like n the numbers don't mean anything for me. It has only been an experience of, like, where I am spiritually and where I am as far as connected to my community. Um, so started working with a new sponsor. I worked through... Um, I worked through a bunch of the steps with her. I'm going to kind of just walk through that. I think it's so important. Um, step one, I walked into the rooms. That, for me, was step one. I've worked it formally a bunch of times, but um, I have not had a more powerful experience than that one. Um, step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself, greater than ourselves, could restore us to sanity. Um, I grew up in a religious family, going to religious school through college, um, through undergrad. And I had a concept of a God. I did not have a relationship with a God. Um, and so through the, through the process of working step two specifically, I've made that really specific. I've, n I've done the activity where you sort of write a want ad for your higher power and like let that be what it is. That has worked for me really well. Um, the thing that actually has been the best form of connection for me has been the exercise of writing a letter to my higher power with my left hand because I'm left-handed and then writing a letter back from my higher power with my right hand. And when that was suggested to me, I kind of scoffed at it. And then the first time I did it, I felt the difference in those messages that came through. And I was like, okay, that's, there's value there. It's another, even if it's not whatever thing that someone might just define a higher power as, it was another part of myself I was accessing that was gentler and kinder and more loving. And like that was enough for the time. Um, step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to Did I write? Yeah, okay. Um, I don't have a great story for step three, um, but my sponsor is making me do it on a very daily basis right now. She had me reading step three out of the big book every morning and changing the words um, from we to I to make it really personal, and that has changed the whole section of that um, text for me. It's been really um, helpful. Step four. I've done so many fourth steps in the few years I've been here, in this almost seven years. I did, um, the first fourth step I did was through the uh, OA 12 and 12, and I answered all the questions in the book. And 
I sat, like, two days in a row for, like, I don't know, two hours each. I sat with my sponsor in a park and just, like, head down, never looking at her, like, raced through everything that I had written. And it was so what I needed it to be because it was me telling the truth to someone and not being attached to what they said about it and, like, not having to engage on an emotional level and, like, not caring what they thought about it. Um, and that's what I needed to get to the next level. So the next time I worked through my fourth step with my second sponsor, I did it the big book style. It took months to turn it over. It took months to write it, and it took as many months to turn it over. And um, for better or for worse, I had a relationship with this person who was also a friend of mine, so I cared what she thought about me. And it was that much harder to be honest, but also it was that much more healing to have someone, like, completely see me and jumping into the step five of it. Like, I have not ever felt more loved or more seen or more accepted than in that process of step five. It's a really beautiful step, and I have not had a bad experience with it yet. Um, Step six, I, we were entirely ready to have gotten with all these defects of character. I was miserable in step six. The second time I did it, I remember um, just telling my sponsor, like, we have got to get the F out of six because I'm going to die here. Because <laughs> all of my defects just were coming up in my life and I was seeing it everywhere. Um, and that was good motivation to get to seven. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Um, step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. I did this the first time with my first sponsor just before I sort of was in the relapse period and so grateful that I didn't go out and make the amends at that point because I can see now how not ready I was to do that um, as much as I wanted to just, like, cross the finish line. So when I did this, the amends the second – the eighth step the second time, I read it over to that same sponsor I turned that second, fourth step over with, and it was amazing because there was things on this list that were so embarrassing – there was really, you know, there was common ones of stealing people's food, and I'm not really, um, I have not a history of stealing as far as, like, money or, like, um, clothing or anything like that, but I'm a scammer. I like to see what I, not to see what I can get away with because um, there's, like, an ego or, like, a rush in it, but because I'm, a, I'm afraid there's not enough. And I have a fear of scarcity. It was uncovered um, specifically in my ninth step that that's the thing that underlies every other character defect I have is a fear of scarcity. Um, I'm afraid there's not enough money. I'm afraid there's not enough attention. I'm afraid there's not enough time, enough food, enough love, enough, I mean, go wild with it. Um, so reading the list to my sponsor for eight was the best part about it was actually there was a couple things that were so embarrassing. I didn't know how to, like, admit to them. And stupid things, like one of the things that I used to do was I would go buy a book from a bookstore and then read it and then return the book to the bookstore. And, like, it's, it's not an inherently shameful act, but I felt really shameful about it, and she just laughed at me about it. And, like, because of the nature of our relationship, the laughter was so lightening, you know? Like, it, it, it took away the darkness. It took away from the, the, um, the like, heavy morbidity of it all. And so... And then there was another one that um, I, I grew up in a specific religion that um, when you go to church, you sometimes eat things. And um, I, as, a, as someone who kind of like volunteered in the church, would eat those things with the other kids. And my sponsor was like, I'm Jewish. I don't know what to do about that. Like, she was just like, I have no idea. And so I, um, I kind of just put it down. And then a couple weeks later, a fellow reached out to me, and I don't remember why, but she shared that she was like, oh, my God, and I had this crazy amends when I was, you know, seven years ago, ten years ago in program, and I had to do this thing, and it was exactly the same amends I had to make. She was like, this is what I did for it. It was like everything that I needed has come to me as I needed it. 
Um, I also had some really great experiences in step nine of um, one I was thinking about just before the meeting started. I, like many of us, have eaten roommate's food. Um, I ate cookies that one of my roommates had um, all the time consistently, and she was from Italy, and so they were these Italian biscuits that I could never replace even if I had wanted to. And so I'm still friends with her. She lives in Italy. And so when I was making my amends, my sponsor was like, let's just make this as fun as we can make it. Some of them are not going to be fun, but, like, the ones that can be fun, like, let's enjoy them. And so she's like, buy some cookies, send them to your roommate, like, tell her this story. Like, it'll be, you know, it's fine. And so um, I bought – I couldn't even buy the Italian cookies. because you know, couldn't ship anything directly to her. So I, like, went to whatever store and bought her American cookies and sent her. And I was like, I'm sorry. I used to eat your cookies when we were in – when we were living together. And she didn't even get him for uh, months, but then she wrote me back when she got him. She was like, oh, my God, it's so fine. If I had known that you had liked them so much, I would have brought back more with me. Thank you for the, the package. I just sent you more cookies. <laughs> so I was like, I love. It's just so sweet. I don't eat sugar. That's part of my abstinence. But it was like just a wink um, and a nod from the universe. And... Um, the other one in my ninth step, there was a, a friend, friend of me when I was in junior high, high school that I had who was not nice to. And it wasn't egregious, and I was a teenager, but it was not my being my best version of myself. Um, and, you know, we don't do more harm. And so I didn't, I spoke with my sponsor about it. I didn't know what was the right line to walk with that. And she said, I want you to just meditate on it for 30 days, and we'll see what comes up. And so for 30 days, every day for... 10 minutes or whatever, I meditated on what my higher power would have me do um, in sending love to this person. And on the 30th day, I did my meditation. I was at the office. I had time to meditate. I finished the meditation. An hour later, I got a friend request from her on social media. And it was like, okay, like, I don't need to do more than that. That's enough for me to just see that the universe, like, something is working. Um, Step 10, continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I currently have a 10-step practice. I don't have um, another, like, anecdote. But when I first started working with my sp- my initial sponsor, she had me do an AEIOU every night. So I got in the habit very quickly of just calling and checking in. Um, and I'll tell you, for there were months straight that I, A, was no. I was not abstinent. And, like, every day I had to make the call and say, no, I'm not abstinent. But the power of just turning it over and, like, feeling tethered to something and to someone was really helpful. When I worked my most recent 10th step, we started doing um, a more formal one sort of out of the big book. And I just check in with myself. I write it down every night of, like, do I have any resentment? My, my sponsor also, also suggested that I assess, like, if I'm angry or frustrated because it can be hard for me to jump all the way to resentment sometimes, so to kind of break down the nuance of it, um, and to list out my character defects that are at play. If so, have I been selfish? Have I been dishonest? Have I been afraid? Do I own any apologies? Um, and then also we've added to that, what am I grateful for? Um, and because step three can always be such a struggle, she, she has me. And one of my greatest character defects, too, is control and own, owning things. People, things, um, situations, reactions. So she has me write down things that I don't own and don't control. I don't control this person. I don't control this response. I don't control, you know, what my career looks like. So every night I have a nightly reminder of, like, all the things over which I am powerless and that I just get to be the channel for. Step 11, I have... Um, since that first meditation meeting, that was the kind of first time I ever really picked up meditating. And um, it was, you know, at the time, 10 minutes once a week, and it's evolved. Thank you. Uh, it's evolved to twice daily practice, and that's when I just check in. Sometimes I have a mantra. Sometimes I'm really quiet, and I just wait for, I've heard it described of, like, the silt to sort of, like, separate from the water. So, like, everything gets a little bit more quiet. Um, 
I do a lot. I do a lot of praying and meditating throughout the day and, and, and then bookending it. I'm happy to talk more about it if anyone wants specifics. Um, in step 12, I have absolutely had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I um, Everything good in my life today is either direct or a tangential route results of this program, specifically this program. Um, all of my closest friends are come from these rooms or come from the changes in my personality and my spirit and my ability to show up and be um, a full human and vulnerable with other people because of these rooms. Um, and as a result, I try to carry this message as much as I can. I had... Um, I'm happy to talk about this program outside the rooms when it feels relevant. I'm not embarrassed about it at all. That has shifted for me with weight loss. When I was still carrying more weight than I was comfortable with, I was really embarrassed to admit that I was in a way. Um, I felt like it was obvious that I had a problem. You could see me and know that I was sick. Now, thank God, whether whatever you think about when you look at my, me or my body, I'm not thinking about that. So I'm happy to share my experience because so much good has come from me out of this pro- from me out of this program. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it. I'm so happy to be doing a podcast about it. When I first came in the rooms, these um, I listened to these podcasts on a loop every day. I probably listened to three or four of them a day. I just needed to have the message in my brain so much. Um, and I sponsor. So those are um, my my sort of like regular 12-step practices. And I had I did have one 12-step story that um, a few years ago I was at a, a event for the industry I work in, and one of my coworkers. Uh, was there and he noticed that I lost a bunch of weight and I was fairly early in recovery and he was like how'd you do it and we were like in a group of people and I was like this is an awkward and I was like should I say something and I was like oh you know eating healthy <laughs> you know like a very sort of generic answer and then later that night I called my sponsor and I was like should I have said something I feel like I'm not being good about the 12th step and um should I send him an email like more privately and she was like just let it go she was like it'll you know like what you needed to get and what he needed to get out of that exchange was exactly what happened. Um, so I let it go. And then um, a few months ago, I was at an event at the same location. Um, I don't work with this man anymore, but he was there. And so we were catching up and we were walking out of the event and he was like, you look great. How did you do it? And we were standing in the exact same location we had been standing in last time. And I was like, you know what? I work a 12-step program. <laughs> and I don't know what he – I mean, we talked about it for a few minutes. He was like, yeah, the higher power thing. I've, I've tried it once. It kind of freaked me out. But I was like, I got to show up and share my experience with someone else who maybe needed to hear it once again. Um, so part of my, you know, fear of scarcity and that um, amends to myself is, like, leaning into – the faith that my higher power is taking care of me and providing me every opportunity I need. And if I miss the boat, then I'll catch the next one because I can't miss my boat. Um, I think that's all I want to share. I would love to open up for questions. Thank you so much. Yes, that's a great question. Thank you. My abstinence, and do I also work with a food plan? Yeah, thank you. Um, my abstinence, I define it as um, I avoid recreational sugar and a very short list of alcoholic foods. For me, it's um, cereal and nuts, like, by themselves. I can eat nuts in something, but I can't eat them by the handle. Um, and beyond that, I don't restrict. So that leaves a lot of space. Uh, for me, I don't have a formal food plan on a day-to-day basis, but I have found that three meals and two snacks is always, like, a recipe for sanity for me. And so 
most days of the week, specifically when I'm working at my office, which can be uh, fraught with food issues sometimes, um, I try to stick to my food plan. And I will commit to it if, I, if I'm really feeling especially crazy. I'll commit to it in the morning to my sponsor. And um, if I have felt... Uh, like I was, like I had a weird day with food the day before. My sponsor is always quick to remind me that for the next 24 hours after we have um, had either a binge or a weird thing or like a body obsession or anything that sort of triggers the disease, we're certifiably crazy. So I don't get to make any decisions after that. I don't get to compensate for my food or my body in any way. So I don't exercise the following day. Um, and I, I stick to the three meals and two snacks. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that your sponsor is having you focus on the third step yeah. daily. What does that look like? Okay. So um, my sponsor is having me focus on the third step daily. And what that looks like is um, she has me read step three in the big book every morning and um, doing the same exercise of changing the we to I. So it becomes a very personal um, reading. And then in the morning I write down um, – I write a letter from my higher power to me that she has sort of prescribed for me. Um, basically, dear Monica, I'm taking care of everything today. I don't need your help. I love you. Enjoy it. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the short version. Um, and then I write out the third step prayer. And when I get to turning over my um, difficulties and defects, I add and defects of character, and I list out my defects of character. So it's kind of a 3-7 um, hybrid. And... Um, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk more about the relapse that happened and how you determined that that was Sure. Um, talking about the relapse and determining how that was what was happening for me. Um, so my original abstinence was no binging, I think is what I had the first year. And I was doing that. Um, and then I found that I was getting a little bit closer kind of like to discomfort with food. The way I was eating was getting a little bit bigger. I was eating things that didn't really feel good in my body, things that also my restrictive self felt really scared about. Um, sugar and candy and sandwiches and pizza and all the things that like kind of are on my list that I couldn't eat. Um, and at a certain point, I couldn't exactly pinpoint when or why I had a shift. I just was like, oh, this I'm not clean right now. Like, something about this does not feel clean. And um, and then I got the case of the ethics. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, I, I'll just eat whatever I want then. Since, and that's, like, for me, that's a really good marker. Of if I'm not caring what I'm putting into my body, I'm probably not connected somewhere. And so I spent a couple months in there of just, like, eating whatever I was eating and feeling terrible about it and being obsessive about it but not being able to change it and so once I turned over my first step again and sort of reestablished the the um the role that restricting had played in my abstinence and in my um or not my abstinence but in my disease and then seeing how that I was so delusional to think I was abstinent when actually I was just restricting that kind of shifted the perspective for me I don't know if that's helpful Um, can you talk about when you did your ninth step, if there were any amends that didn't turn out the way you had hoped and how you maybe dealt with that? Sure. When I was doing my ninth step, were there any amends that didn't turn out the way that I had hoped and how I dealt with that? So I have, um, I, wor- I started working a second program about a year and a half after I started in OA. And by the time I got to doing my amends in OA, I was probably at about my fifth step in that program. And... Um, I could see very clearly, like, there were certain amends that were so OA-specific. I was feeling food. I was, you know, doing things that were um, very much directly related to this disease. My other program, which is about relationships and people, 
Um, there were other ones that were that seemed like they felt really into that category. And so my, immediately my sponsor said, I talked to my sponsor about it, and we saw I was kind of rounding the corner on my nine step on that program. So I was like, let's just do the OA-specific ones here, and then we'll come back around to the other ones. Um, and it looks like me doing a lot of amends to myself first, frankly. And so some of those were the hardest. And, like, some of those, I would say, were the ones that didn't turn out the way that I would have wanted. Um, but externally, I had mostly good experiences. There were ones that were uncomfortable, but nothing that someone, you know, threw something back in my face about it or, like, didn't receive what I was offering. Um, so I don't have a great experience to share as far as that concerned. I did have to make an amends to my brother who had died. And that was hard. That was hard because it was finding the best way of doing that that felt um, like it honored what I needed to say and also that it um, it was honest to what our relationship looked like, which was not good. Um, and that took a while to figure out. And I think that ultimately it was a writing letter. Thank you, I'll wrap up. Writing a letter to him, um, going to the beach, sort of like burning it or whatever, throwing it into the ocean, something at the beach. Um, and then, and, like, the funny story about that was I was standing on the edge of the water in my tennis shoes, like, getting rid of this amends, and the water, like, crashed up higher than it had been coming and soaked me from, like, my ankles down. And it just felt like such a, like, him uh, doing this. <laughs> him giving me the middle finger. Um, and, and so there was a moment of, like, kind of just reaction of, like, what a fucking, sorry, a-hole. <laughs> um, because that's who he was. But then I was like, oh, this is, it's just a message. And also, these shoes are garbage, and I need to get new ones. So, like, that was a really helpful gift that he let me, like, do for myself something that I couldn't have taken care of myself. Um, so that's all I have. Thank you so much. <laughs>